has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11. And coming at you from the great state of Texas. Where our greatest export is freedom and our biggest import is California. <laughs> Welcome to another edition of Bridge Radio. I'm glad to be back with you today. Uh, John Sampson actually covered the program last week. He did an excellent job teaching the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, please go back and listen to that one. It was excellent. I know when it comes to that doctrine, there's a lot of kind of confusion and, and, and uh, questions when it comes to that. But he did a fantastic job. So I just want to point everyone back to that one as well as the last 64 episodes. So uh, anyway, if you are new, we are the Christian podcast that brings on the world's top Christian apologists, theologians, and scholars to discuss theology and worldview. I am your host, Julio Mad Rodriguez. And across from me, you didn't hear the Abe Varilla, but I have my dear friend Shane Kirk. How's it going, brother? I'm doing good. Cool. So, today's topic, I'm super excited to, to have this guest on, aren't you, Shane? I am super, super excited. Uh, today, on today's program, we're going to be having a first-time guest, and uh, we're going to be discussing his book, The Great Good Thing, which is about his testimony as a secular Jew who came to faith in Christ. But before we get to that, I just want to point to everyone, please subscribe. Uh, you could find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Android, Windows, and also our Bridge app that is across all uh, app stores. Simply type in Bridge Ministries and you'll find a lot of theological goodness in addition to our podcast. Uh, and please drop us a review as it allows us to kind of work up the Christian podcast charts. And also we like to get more exposure and, and feedback as well. Uh, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Bridgemen Laredo. So please like us there and uh, subscribe. And also, I was at the G3 conference and I got some free stuff there. Uh, for those uh, who want something free, uh, like everyone, everyone likes stuff that's free, right, Shane? Yeah. Uh, I have a Sermon on the Mount by Sinclair Ferguson, excellent theologian. He's a professor of systematic theology. This is produced by Ligonier Ministries. It's a uh, 12, 23-minute message on two DVDs, all on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, anything that Ligonier produces, teaching-wise, is absolutely excellent. So this is just a good thing that you could use as your daily devotionals, etc., etc. So anyway, I'm not going to hold our guest any longer. Uh, let me go ahead and introduce him. Our guest is an award-winning author, screenwriter, and media commentator. His essays and op-eds on politics, religion, movies, and literature have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the LA Times, LA Times, LA Times, and elsewhere. You can also find his podcast on the Daily Wire, which everyone needs to go check out. Uh, we, uh, we will be discussing his book, as I said, The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ, which has been praised by individuals such as Eric Metaxas and Stephen King to Forbes and the New York Times. And thank you, Andrew Claven, for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. Yeah, thank you for taking your time out of uh, out of your day to, to to come with us, little folks, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I wanted to start off the the program. Um, uh, I, I I was looking at my Facebook feed this this morning, and I had I kind of saw this kind of in the last two days uh, on on this subject. But is it true that uh, New York has uh, made it legal to abort a child even up to? Uh, the, the the day before it's born is that true? 
Yeah, that's the news. I mean, that that's their new Reproductive Freedoms Act or whatever it's called. And uh, basically it, it proposes that until the moment the child uh, breaks out of the mother's womb, uh, he is held hostage to the state and the people can uh, wipe him out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Cause, yeah. Because yeah, sometimes it's. You know, you see some stuff on Facebook and you're like, eh, I don't know how much of is that's true. That kind of sounds ridiculous. It kind of sounds really far out. But wow, that is um, that's interesting. I, I haven't I haven't had time to really look and read into it, but that that is very concerning. So, <laughs> yeah, I, there's absolutely no way you can argue that it's anything but infanticide. But I do think that by the logic of um, of abortion, infanticide is uh, absolutely uh, excusable, and there are certainly people like Peter Singer at uh, Princeton uh-huh. yeah. uh, who argue that infanticide is is justifiable. And I think that uh, you know, I think that's where you go when you have have nothing to guide you. What else can you say? Right. Yeah, we're gonna get into a little bit of that as well. So yeah, so let's let's uh, we're we're here to interview about uh, interview you on on your book. So uh, what I wanted to bring up, uh, you were raised in a Jewish family, but you eventually came to atheism at a very young age. Uh, can you talk about that journey and, and how that kind of led to that? Yeah, my upbringing in religious terms was, on the one hand, kind of weird, and on the other, not that uncommon, in that I was raised in the Jewish tradition. It was very important to my father, though not my mother, that we were raised, uh, that we knew the traditions of Judaism, and that we went to Hebrew school and were bar mitzvah and all those things. But my parents were, in fact, uh, not believers. Uh, they were, my, my mother was a stone atheist and was till the day she died. Uh, and my father, I think, sort of um, hedged his bets a little bit. I, I okay. always used to say yeah, I used to say that he was not going to uh, make a, a giant invisible Jew who could give you cancer just by thinking about it. I didn't want to get him angry. <laughs> uh, but but I, ultimately, uh, it, it meant that none of it made any sense to me whatsoever. Why was I learning this weird foreign language that nobody spoke? Why was I wearing the funny hat, going to this temple, and giving services in a language I didn't really understand? Why sure. was I doing it, that if there was no God? It made no sense. And so by the time I was bar mitzvahed, I was really uh, a non-believer. And when I stood up and said all the words. I didn't want to get bar mitzvahed, but I basically was uh, compelled to. And uh, when I got up and said all the words, I just really felt uh, like a liar. And uh, in in those days, and in my neighborhood, when you got bar mitzvahed, they gave you a passel of gifts. I mean, thousands and thousands of dollars of savings bonds and jewelry and watches and pen sets and all these wow. very, very expensive gifts. And I was that part of it I liked very much. You know, I'd never had any uh, wealth before, and so I put it in this little box and I kind of cherished it. And then, I, you know, I'm not sure how long it was afterwards, maybe six months, maybe longer, uh, that one day I was looking at this box and I realized that it was all ill-gotten gains. I'd essentially been paid for lying, and that mm. began to really eat at me. And one day I waited until everybody uh, went to bed, which happened fairly early in my family because my father worked early in the morning, and uh, I crept outside with my box full of thousands and thousands of dollars of jewelry <laughs> and savings bonds, and I stuffed it down into the garbage outside uh, so that no one would find it when the garbage man came and took it away and threw it away in the morning, which is what happened. And after that, I, I had felt so bad about my hypocrisy that I just decided I was done. Hmm. You know, that was it. That religion was a, a, a con, and uh, I wasn't going to indulge in it again. Wow, yeah. So that, that seems something that's... Um very rare in a in a young man to just throw away thousands of dollars like you I, that's I, to me i think that's very rare for 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 someone very young how, no. how old were you again I was 13 or 14. I may have been 14 by that point. It was right you know after my bar mitzvah but yeah um, but the thing is you know what's really interesting about it is 
I, I never told anybody the story mm. uh, for for over 20 years. And then one day I told it to someone casually, a friend of mine in, in conversation and just was said, oh, this happened when I was a kid. And he looked at me and he said, you know, that's an amazing story. Mm-hmm. And here I was at that point, I was a professional storyteller. I don't think you mentioned this in the introduction. I, yeah. I've made my living most of my life as a thriller writer. Mm-hmm. And and I thought, he's right. That is a, an amazing story. And I never thought of it before, of how amazing it is. And that made me realize that the whole issue uh, was more serious to me and more important to me than I had maybe given it credit for. In other words, it must have really meant something to be a hypocrite on that subject specifically that I was willing to do that. Yeah. And and how militant was, uh, was your mother? Would you consider her sort of like a militant atheist, maybe sort of quasi like Dawkins and Daniel Dennett, I don't, you know, just raising up in that household. She was oh, far, far more atheist than that. She just didn't care. Wow. I mean, I mean, you have to, you have to care. I mean, guys like Dawkins are really believers who are trying in denial, I think, because mm. that's, they have to force everybody not to believe. But my mother just thought, believe, don't believe I could care less is all about, as, as she would have said, uh, it's all a bunch of hooey, you know, and, um, and she just, uh, Felt like, you know, if you wanted to dance around and eat bread and wine or eat, you know, uh, sure. matzo and wear a, con- a yarmulke, go ahead. Yeah. And, and so how, how much did that play into you be, becoming an atheist? I mean, as as a man, as, as men, I mean, our mothers play a pretty, pretty big role in our, in our lives, especially emotionally. So. Well, the fact is, I was never I was never an atheist except for a very brief period of my life because mm-hmm. I felt that just logically you didn't know. So I was an, a functional atheist in that I had no relationship with God and I had no relationship with religion. But I, I was a philosophical agnostic. Uh, it, it seemed to me that even uh, belief in nothing like my mother had was more belief than I was willing to have. Hmm. Yeah, and, and th- that, that's interesting that, that, that you, you bring up that you, you weren't religious, but w- would you agree that even atheists, it, it's kind of not whether uh, you're religious or not, but which kind of religion do you follow? Do you, do you even kind of see a religious sort of instinct as well as in, like, atheist? I mean, I've— Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that atheists are definitely believers of a kind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're, you're talking about something where uh, religious people are very honest. They say, I have yeah. faith. You know, they, this is what I believe. Um, and I think that it's agnostics who are really the ones who are basically saying, I don't believe in anything. I just don't know. Yeah. And sometimes it—, it for some agnostics, it's not important enough for them to figure out. Uh, I think for me, it always kind of bothered me underneath the surface. Mm, okay. So so looking back, uh, what were some of the reasons and influences for denying God's existence and believing uh, as a young man, as you wrote in your book, quote, that faith is the death of thought? Well, you know, that was, I'm, I'm very convinced that people are carried along in the intellectual narrative of their time, uh, even without knowing it. You know, people just don't know why they hold a lot of the ideas they hold. And I was, I, I came up and became an adult at a period that I would say was the death of modernism. And the idea of modernism was that we were all in this great conversation that went on through the ages, Aristotle talking to Shakespeare, talking to Montaigne, you know, all these different people uh, discussing things. And we never knew, we never reached the truth, but we moved toward the truth. And modernism collapsed because in my lifetime, when people started to ask, well, how do you even know there is such a thing as truth? And that's how we got to postmodernism, because modernism was a secular uh, idea. And the, and the reason it was a secular idea was that everybody was convinced that 
religion meant a certain answer and no other answer was allowable and therefore put an end to thought. Hmm. So, yeah. and, and you will read this again and again, even in modern people who cannot, who th- who understand the goodness of faith, but can't believe as they will say, how can there, once you have one answer, uh, then you can't discuss things anymore. You can't think anymore. You can't reason anymore, which always really haunted me, that idea. And it doesn't occur to them that that's true of any truth. I mean, once you say that the world is round, you can no longer say it's flat. I mean, what, you know, that is just the nature of truth. And there is, it turns out, with faith, a lot to think about. And it's simply that you are no longer thinking about whether the questions are endless or not. You now believe that, in fact, the questions come to an end at some place. But the nature of that place does remain mysterious, even in Christianity. Yes. I have a question. There's a big part of uh, your podcast that I love. It's called My Crappy Culture. Uh, (laughs) But it seems like what you're talking about is basically a society that is sawing off the branch that they're sitting on, right? There's a Judeo-Christian truth that goes all the way down. And right now we're kind of sitting on that, but we really have not, as a society, kind of asked ourselves um, about the truth of that matter, or even deny the truth. What do you foresee as a consequence of that in the future? Well, that's a, it's a great question, and I mean, you're talking about hmm. what uh, Pope Benedict XVI was always talking about, that when you, uh, it, you know, get rid of the, the place where all your thoughts, reasons, values come from, you can't then continue to maintain those thoughts, reasons, and values, which has been a real problem for the West since the Enlightenment, and it has been something that a lot of poets and philosophers have thought about. Uh, it's interesting, I've written an article that will be in the next issue of City Journal about this very subject, because one of the things I've noticed is that on the one hand, hand, we have a lot of thinkers uh, like Marcelo Pera and uh, the guy who just wrote uh, The Strange Death of Europe, uh, Jordan Peterson, I would count among them, uh, who say who say that without God, you cannot have the values that sustain Western culture. But I personally don't believe. I can't believe because of science, or I can't believe because of uncertainty, or I can't believe because of uh, postmodernism. For whatever reason, they cannot break out of the modern, the postmodern narrative and believe, even though they know faith is necessary. Then on the other side, you have guys like Steven Pinker and Sam Harris and these people who, who say, uh, Yuval Harari, I think his name is, who say, oh, no, no, the best thing about the modern world is that there's no God, and therefore we will go on and on into a beautiful world of technology and wealth and gladness uh, that we've already uh, moved towards since since the Enlightenment came uh, and, and killed all this silly faith stuff. So you have these two sides, one side thinking that they should believe but can't, and the other thinking, no, 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 everything is great if you don't believe. I personally think that neither of those sides makes very much sense, and I think that when things don't make sense, they tend to collapse. Right. I think... Um, ultimately, what I am looking toward is something kind of like the Oxford movement, where, um, where, which was, which was in the uh, 18th, 19th century, where people started to say, well, wait a minute, let's go back a, a step and see if this faith stuff makes sense at the intellectual level. See, what I'm looking for, and I really do believe is coming, is an intellectual revo- revival. Uh, people coming out of the universities, young people coming out of the universities and saying, no, it doesn't make sense that there's no such thing as moral truth. If there is such a thing as moral truth, there must be a God who uh, sustains that truth, and therefore let's take a look again at our religion and uh, see if we can uh, accommodate it to the modern world. Because there is too much uh, in religion of people who uh, demand that the science give way to a, a certain biblical reading. And I see no necessity for that whatsoever. I mean, I think uh, science is a wonderful, wonderful thing and our mm-hmm. great tool for exploring the material world. But I in no way believe, see, I, what I believe is that 
when Newton came along, it looked as if we were going to end up with a clockwork universe and that would get rid of the need for God. It looked that way, but it didn't turn out that way. In fact, science has become much, much more mysterious than we think it is. Yep. And now scientists are inventing little fairy tales uh, to convince themselves there's no need for God. Like they talk about the multiverse. Yeah. Uh, this, yeah. this, just happens, this just happens yeah. to be one infinite number of universes that looks like it was created by a giant invisible Jew, you know? That's silly, you know? I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's, like saying, that's like saying this just happens to be the poker game in which I drew five straight flushes in a row, uh, so don't please don't shoot me, you know? That's, it's ridiculous. So I think as, as, as the logic, the Newtonian logic of atheism falls apart, uh, it, in the logically and in the light of new facts, I think there'll be a revival at the intellectual level. Yeah, um, one fact that blew my mind, and I'm like, how is how is atheism going to hold this? Because I, I honestly believe I look out in, into natural revelation, which is nature, and obviously, it to me, it, it points that there is an ultimate creator. And one of the things that I brought up on this podcast before is that I was hearing a scientist who said that I think it's like a. Uh, a teaspoon or maybe it was a kind of like half a cup of uh, DNA probably in like a small Starbucks cup um, it held like this insane amount of data that it could hold like Google like 15 times or something like that and keep in mind the DNA I mean it's 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 information levels way far past beyond like uh, a, a book and I was thought to myself wow like how does an atheistic worldview kind of hold that and, 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 and you know, and, and reconcile that. So I, yeah. I just think it's, I think it's very interesting. It goes along with the multiverse. <laughs> I mean, the science goes along. Now we're reaching a, a science of the gaps issue. Instead of the old God of the gaps, it's the science of the gaps. Yes. How do you, how do you that's, fill that's in? That's exactly what I've called it. I have named it the science of the gaps because I think it is, uh, you know, making excuses for the fact that actually uh, the simplest explanation is God. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Obviously, why are you still in uh, Andrew Clay Andrew Clavin's terms? I, I, I'm I'm such a big fan. It's I, like I was so excited. <laughs> All right, Andrew. So um, one thing that I found interesting in, in you coming out of atheism was, you know, a lot of people would think, oh, well, probably a Christian went up to him, evangelized to him, and that was just it. The light bulb just kind of clicked, and and there I go. I'm a Christian now. But um, what kind of led you out of atheism was an atheist in, in his writings. Uh, who was the atheist and, and, and what did he say? Well, it was, it was the Marquis de Sade from whom we get the term sadism. Mm -hmm. uh, when I, when I moved, I moved from a, at a certain period of time for a lot of complex personal reasons that I do detail in, in the memoir, yeah. I moved to, from agnosticism to atheism and I began to read some of the great atheists. And among them is the Marquis de Sade who wrote uh, essentially philosophical pornography. I don't know how to, else to explain it. Yeah. It's, on, yeah. It, it's on the one hand, true philosophy. It really yes. is philosophy. Yes. And on the other hand, it is filled with graphic and uh, titillating descriptions of uh, acts of cruelty. Uh, uh, and it's not like, it's not like, you know, uh, hitting his girlfriend on the backside with a towel. It's not yeah. that sort of thing. It's actually cutting people to pieces while they, while you rape them to death. I mean, exactly. He was an actual psychopath. Mm. And, yeah. and the thing that, the thing that got me about it was he was the only atheist who made sense. He was the only atheist who I could not argue with. What he said was yeah. essentially, if there is no God, there are there is no absolute morality. Mm -hmm. and, and I think Nietzsche agreed with this. I think it, it's, there's no way to argue around that. Yeah. And if there is no absolute morality, let's do what pleases us. And what pleases us is to exercise power over another for our own pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought to myself, 
Well, that makes sense. You know, that actually doesn't make sense, except that the world that he's describing is hell. You know, a world in which the the weak uh, are used for the pleasure of the strong and are destroyed. Uh, it, yes, that's the only world that makes sense in an atheist uh, world and in an atheist philosophy. And it's hell. And so I, I then realized, oh, I, I get it. You can make sense of atheism and you can make sense of a religious belief. One of them leads to hell and one of them leads somewhere else. One hopes. Yeah. And so yeah. and so that was the moment when I thought you have to choose. I, I do believe this. I do believe that God, in order to keep us free, has given us a world with two explanations that make sense. One is the atheist explanation and the other is the religious explanation. And the only thing about the atheist explanation is you cannot have both atheism and morality and make sense. You can have you can have both atheists. You can be a moral atheist, but you're not making any sense. And yeah. so I thought that, that you know that he described hell. Uh, I thought was just okay. I'm, I'm choosing not to go that way. Yeah. And so whenever you say uh, Marquis de Sade he, that he made sense, which what you're really pointing at uh, is that he's being a consistent atheist in his worldview. Correct. That's exactly right. Yeah. So j just to make that clear, so. A lot of atheists will look at that and they'll be like, "Well, I could hold to morality too as as an atheist. Like I could I could justify it, but but we would disagree, you and I. How is it that the atheist worldview just can't justify morality in in, in their worldview? If you could explain that, well, you know, I, you if you read the new books uh, written by psychologists, Stephen Pinker is one of them. Yeah. Uh, the others, uh, Jonathan Haidt has one about uh, I, the righteous mind. I think it's called. Uh, there there are a whole bunch of them. And they do these experiments, and what they say is this: they'll say they'll they'll try to find out how morality evolved, right? They mm -hmm. use evolutionary science to find out how morality evolved. And what they'll say is, if they show you how the eye evolves, they'll say that's why we can see light, which yeah. makes sense. Yeah. The eye evolved, now we can see light. But when they show you how morality evolved, they say, oh, that's how we invented morality. Like no one would say this is how the eye evolved. That's how we invented light. Mm -hmm. But they they don't understand that the moral sense perceive something. Yuval Harari in his book Sapiens says we have a gift for telling stories and religion, human rights, uh, femininity are all stories that we tell. Well, I've lived my life as a storyteller and stories don't invent reality. Yeah. They describe reality. They mm. describe reality that can't be uh, spoken directly. So our, our moral sense is actually perceiving something. It was just when in the in the old days, in ancient days, when everybody held slaves and everybody thought slavery was normal, including slaves, slavery was still immoral. We just didn't know it yet. And so that's that's the important thing. You, in order to believe that the moral universe is relative, you have to believe that if every person on earth is a Nazi, Nazism becomes correct. And that is something that almost nobody believes. Yeah. Uh, you know, nobody really believes. Yeah, of course. Go, going back to uh, to your household. Um, growing up in a Jewish household, um, you know, me and Shane were kind of far removed from what Jewish culture is. <laughs> Obviously, I'm Hispanic. Uh, uh, Shane is, uh, what do you say, Shane? What are you? I don't know. I grew up <laughs> in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. I, there, was, there was a small interaction with some of the, but they were the Hasidic Jews. They weren't so much secular Jews. But Yeah. And so my, my question is, uh, Andrew, is I, I want you to kind of describe of what what is the perception of Christianity uh, uh, from from Judaism, especially growing up in, in, a, in a Jewish household? 
Well, it's really uh, it, it very difficult for American Christians to understand this because mm-hmm. American Christians are some of the best friends Jews ever had. Yep. But before we got here, uh, the Jews were oppressed by, by Christians for thousands of years, really. I mean, for uh, 2,000 years. And it left a, it left a scar. Uh, you know, before the Crusaders went off to conquer Outremer, where the Muslims were, they stopped off in their own Jewish communities and killed the Jews because they said, well, how can we fight the infidel uh, overseas if we haven't killed the infidel here? Uh, you know, the Jew, the Jew was the other. The Jew was the other. When you had when you had an Easter play in the Middle Ages, the evil guy, the evil villain was the Jew. The the Catholics would say the Jews killed Christ, a sentence which, to my mind, doesn't even make any sense. But still. So when you got to um, my my father's generation, which was right after the Holocaust, uh, and and that was a big cloud and weight on the Jewish sensibility, the Christians were looked upon as a threat on the one hand and it was a dual threat. It was a threat from without. They hated you. They excluded you. They defined you as the other. And it was a threat from within because it was appealing uh, to be part of the mainstream. So if you converted to Christianity or you seem to, my, my father, I, I started reading when the Bible when I was 15 as a literary exercise. I wanted yeah. to be a writer, and I realized how important uh, the New Testament and the rest of the Bible was to uh, literature. So I started to educate myself and my father walked in on me mm-hmm. without knocking. He walked in and caught me reading the gospel according to Luke and he blew his top. I mean, when you consider, when you consider, if you walk in without knocking into a 15 year old's room, you yeah. got about an 80% chance of getting reading pornography, which I also would have been reading. And to be honest with you, I grew up in the 15, I grew up in the sixties. He could have caught me with a, a woman. He could have actually caught me in bed with a woman. Instead, right. he caught me reading the gospel of Luke and he went nuts. He wow. whacked, I mean, he wagged his finger in my face and he said to me, if you ever think of converting, I will disown you. Uh, and wow. it, it was, he was just furious. And, and that was because it was a threat. It was a danger that they couldn't kill us with the gas chambers, but they would seduce us into destroying ourselves by believing what they believed. The one thing I always appreciate about you, Andrew Clavin, is your politically correct honesty all the way through. Um, I, I, have, I have a quick question because I noticed, so are, are you saying that So some of the uh, like uh, Jews right after the, the Holocaust, they had seen uh, the Nazis and individuals like Hitler uh, as Christians? Am I correct? Because that's kind of what, what I'm what I'm feeling here. No, it's not quite that. It was okay. that it was it was goyisha society. It was Gentile society. Okay. You know, it was the Gentile society which had that threatening, uh, you know, hovering church, but it also could take the form of the Nazis, which obviously was not a Christian movement. Yeah. Uh, but but you could you know I, I've been in little narrow streets in in Europe and Munich where you'll look up and you'll see a, a Virgin Mary painted on the wall. And I can feel what it must have been like to be the Jew in that place mm. where everybody is a Christian. Yeah, it, it would just have been very difficult. Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. Uh, yeah, even, I mean, a uh, 15-year-old just barging into his room. I mean, it just, it just to me, it's, it's very, it's, uh, it's, it's funny and it's also interesting that your, you know, your father would, would get upset reading a New Testament uh, or the Gospel of Luke because, I mean, any mother and father would be like, oh, that's nice. That's, that's great. <laughs> you think, right? Yeah. yeah. Thank God it's just the Gospel of Luke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and, and so you and your father's relationship, this this had a huge role, especially you growing uh, up up into your 20s and in your 30s as well. Uh, talk about the relationship between you and your father and how, you know, that just played a really big uh, impact in, in your life. 
Yeah, it was it was a very it's very sad because mm-hmm. the the thing that I like to emphasize is my father was a really good guy. He was a really honest man. He was a, a decent to the people who worked with him and for him. But he had he had problems, and mm-hmm. uh, you know among his problems were we had a worldview that was I don't want to call it paranoid, but it was a worldview in which he explained away things that went bad for him by inventing a world that was kind of against him. Uh, so he would lecture us at great length about how reality is going to screw you and people don't want you to succeed. And hmm. you know, the the Nazis uh, became increasingly obsessed, increasingly an obsession with him as he grew older. They, he always believed they were coming back. He thought any trace of conservatism or Republican president or anything was just a prelude to the Nazis returning. And it was very important to him that his sons believed in this stuff. And I was a very stubborn guy who the evidence in my own eyes, I could see I lived in a great country uh, where the Nazis were not going to be permitted <laughs> to right. arrive. Uh, that, that I was free, that I loved, I loved where I lived, I loved my country, and I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't sign on to those beliefs. And I guess it was because of that, because he sensed some strain of opposition in me that um, he, he didn't like me very much. You know, he he uh, yelled at me and hit me in a way he ne- that he never did. My three brothers, and it, he, there was just an, a fight between us all the time. Mm. And and what happens with that when your dad is not for you but against you, uh, it becomes you you interject it. You, it becomes part of your own personality. Oh, yeah. So so you don't even know when you're rebelling against him. Are you are you saying something you believe or you're just fighting with your father? So you don't know what you think. You don't know what you want. You don't know who you are. And ultimately, that resulted in a kind of a cycle of depression in my life. I was very very fortunate to have been. Uh, gone into this occasionally very deep, crushing depression before yeah. there were pills, because nowadays they would go out of their way to drug me, but they didn't. So I had to solve some of those problems myself, uh, which was really a good thing. I had to go out and join, you know, force myself to join things. I don't like joining things, but I would do it just to get out of my depressions. And and ultimately, I cracked up. I mean, ultimately, uh, I, I couldn't operate in the world because I couldn't do I didn't even know what kind of books I wanted to write because I didn't know who I was because I was fighting with my father in my heart all uh-huh. the time. And uh, finally, I just cracked and I, I went into a period of deep uh, hypochondria, delusion. It was terrible, terrible yeah. stuff. And because I was a writer, an artist. Uh, I just thought this is the way writers and artists are. We're depressed and the world is terrible and everything is sad. You know, you know, it's, what is that song? It's hip to be miserable when you're young and intellectual. And I thought, <laughs> you know, that, that was kind of what I thought it was. Huh. And, and then one day I realized one of one of my brothers had very similar problems. And I suddenly realized, oh, no, I've got it. I've, I've cracked up, you know. And I said to my wife, I, I need help. And that <laughs> that was a, a major, major turning point in my life. Uh, by the by the grace of God, I found a, uh, a brilliant psychiatrist, just a mm-hmm. wonderful person uh, and a brilliant mind. The only I, I sometimes believe I'm the only person who was ever cured by a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there, there was an onion headline once: "Psychiatrist cures patient." You know, yeah, <laughs> I thought, yeah. I thought, I'm that. That's me. You know, I'm the guy. <laughs> and um, and I, it was amazing because I went into that therapy uh-huh. uh, just just absolutely a puddle on the floor, just an mm-hmm. absolute crushed human being. And five years later, I came out of it, and I was uh, on the road to a life of increasing joy. And that is a, a miracle. I owe that man my life. I, you know, I always I always tell people never be afraid to reach out for help. Help. It's you know it's a good thing, uh, and sometimes for guys especially it's very tough. Yeah. But um, but when I, but I was really blessed in finding that guy, and it just turned my life completely around. Yeah. 
So yeah, now now turning into your switching gears here and turning into the actual conversion, uh, you wrote something at the end of your introduction that I thought was awesome. You said, quote, other men are born into faith and never leave it. I was planted elsewhere and had to find my way. And when my five-month pilgrim uh, pilgrimage through the Santa Barbara Hills was done, I came home rejoicing. I was convinced and fully convinced. My mind was God's. My soul was Christ. My faith was true. Um, now, before uh, all of that, I, I believe after you came out of um, counseling, you... Um, you sort of took up a, a, a routine of prayer or some sort of commitment of a prayer. Uh, where, where did that come from, and, and how did that really benefit and impact you? Well, actually, the, the story is a little longer than that because okay. when I came out of when I came out of therapy, that was the point when I started to become uh, committed to atheism because Freud was an atheist. My ah. therapy had been Freudian, but it had been kind of neo-Freudian. Uh, Freud was an atheist, and, I, and so. There were a lot of things pointing me in the direction of atheism, and it was very important to me to have integrity in my thought and to make sense in my thought. And so I adopted atheism. But others, there were other things that had also come along. One was the birth of my daughter, during which I had the one and only mystical experience of my life, when I actually saw that the world was all love, that the world, mm. uh, as we see it, is just a, a, a language of love. Uh, and, and I didn't know how to get rid of that. And also, there was this question that we were talking about earlier of morality. Sure. Uh, I, I believed, you know, I grew up in a time where they told you, uh, postmodernism, where they told you there's no such thing as moral truth. But I could not believe that. I didn't know anybody believed it. I didn't know how it could make sense that it was true because people would say, well, nothing is true. And you would say, well, is that true? Uh, you know, postmodernism mm -hmm. yes. has that little nugget of stupidity. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah. And so and so none of it made sense. Yeah. And over time, I, I simply began to realize that logically, logically, there had to be a God. Mm -hmm. And and because of the way I grew up and because of the, I, you know, I was an intellectual, I was a Jewish intellectual in yeah. places, in cities like New York and Hollywood and London. And I thought there was nobody around who was going, oh, and by the way, everybody's wrong. There is a God. I mean, everybody mm -hmm. I knew was an agnostic or an atheist. Yeah. And, and slowly that stopped making sense. And then one day I was reading a book on a, a sea adventure, a wonderful writer named Patrick O'Brien, one of the great writers of the end of the 20th century. And it had a hero that I admired in it. And at one point there was a single sentence where it said he said a prayer and he fell asleep. And I was reading in bed and I thought, well, if he can say a prayer and I and I know logically there must be a God, maybe I can say a prayer. Mm. And, I, and I said, Thank you, God. That was my prayer because I was my career had gone well. My I loved my wife. I loved my children. We were happy and well. We were, and I so I just said thank you, God, and I went to sleep. And the the next day, my life had changed, and I started. To, I saw I saw the world entirely differently, and I realized the only thing that was different was that I had said a prayer, and so I started to pray, and it was a very experimental uh, five year uh, project where I would. I, I wasn't looking at any books. I wasn't reading the Bible. I was just praying. I was just talking to God, you know. And um, and so, you know, I would do crazy stuff. Like I would think, well, can you pray for a, a million dollars? You know, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. You know, what, what, yeah. what can you pray for? What do you pray about? And so I was just inventing prayer. And at the end of five years, when I was living in, in Santa Barbara, this beautiful town in, uh, in Southern California, um, I, I realized prayer had revolutionized my life. Mm -hmm. That I had a well of joy and serenity, 
peace and sense that I had been looking for my whole life, but had only found through prayer. I'd been trying to philosophize it. I tried to find it in, in psychiatry and therapy. Huh? I tried to find it through Zen Buddhism. I tried to find it a million ways. And here it was through prayer. And I drove up into the Santa Barbara Hills and I started to pray in praise and thanks to God. Huh? And I said, you know, you're God and I'm just some schmo. You know, what, what, what do right. I do in return? How do I pay you back for this life that you've given me? And I heard, I mean, I didn't, it's not quite like a voice in my ear, but it mm -hmm. was that certain. I heard, you should be baptized. Now it's time to be baptized. Huh. And my and my response was, out loud, I went, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that yeah. was the furthest thing from my mind. I thought I was way past that stuff. Uh, I, had, I had toyed with some kind of sick, weird Christianity when I was in the depths of my uh, madness. And I yeah. thought, oh, no, am I cracking up again? What the hell is this? You know, I mean, it, was just yeah. a, it was just a terrible uh, moment. And also... It was bad for me, you know. It was. Um, I still had traces of that idea that if I adopted Christianity, I'd no longer be able to think. I'd no longer be a free man. Yeah. Uh, I was working in Hollywood and making a lot of money in Hollywood, and I certainly didn't want to go into Hollywood and tell people I was a Christian. That would be the end of my career. Uh, and and I didn't want to write Christian books because I hate them. Uh, just to be blunt, I mean, um, <laughs> I, the greatest Christian novel I ever read and a novel that changed my life was Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky, which is about uh, an axe murderer who falls in love with a whore. Uh, mm -hmm. You couldn't sell that in a Christian bookstore. Christian bookstores are all full of happy talk where everything yeah. goes right. And, you know, Jesus solves everything. And I thought, oh, my God, this is awful. You know, this is a terrible thing. And so I actually spent five months trying to go over my entire life. And this is the basis of my memoir. I went over my entire life to make sure I hadn't made a logical mistake. Uh, <laughs> you know? I was looking yeah. as the old W.C. Fields joke. I was looking for a loophole, you know. Yeah. And. And uh, and no, you know, that's what that passage you read was when I finally realized, having gone through all my life, that every step of my logic made sense. It made sense. And I realized that no matter what it meant, uh, even if it meant having a tremendous fight with my father, which I was afraid of because we he and I had made a separate piece. We never got along, but we had made a separate piece. And I knew that would absolutely make him crazy. Uh, I thought no matter what, I have to have the integrity to step up and believe what I believe. Yeah. So, yeah, r real quickly here, because we're, we're, we're about ready to land the plane, but I nope. did want to want to ask the question, um, uh, Andrew, and how, how was it that you, you know, th through the Old Testament and the New Testament, finally came to the conviction and finally saying, yes, this is true, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah uh, awaited what? for in the Old Testament and, and you coming to faith and having that firm faith in, in him? I think I think it was the fact that as I realized when when I I heard this voice saying you should be baptized, huh. the question I started to believe ask myself was well wait a minute I, I believe in God now I've been praying to God for five years uh, is it is it the Christian God does that make sense and I went back hmm. and I had read the, the the whole Bible several times as literature. And so this time I went back and read the Gospels in faith. I just thought well I'm just going to pretend it's all true. And um, and read it that way instead of reading it as literary, where you're interpreting yeah. things, and you know, and um, and that really did, made it made perfect sense to me. I realized that the God I believed in was that God. As as a writer, the concept that the Word had been made flesh made absolute sense of nearly everything. As yeah. I came to understand that concept, I understood what the Gospels 
are trying to say. And it's so much not what so many people think it is like, be good. Don't look at this. Don't do that. Don't don't say don't curse. Don't do this. It's so much not that it's actually a way of living that those things sometimes can be tools to reach. But it's a way of seeing the world uh, as as, as a word, it's a way of seeing life and matter as a language that speaks to you of a higher, uh, more complex world. And I think um, when I read the Gospels, what I see is a guy telling people, I, I am that world, I come from that world, and yeah. I am that world, and I made it, and you can live like that and not worry and be free. And um, and I won't say that I've achieved that, but every day I feel a little closer to that, and it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. The joy of it is insane. And and the sense of truth and meaning, uh, and and this word I think I must have used like 15 times in this interview alone because it is an obsession of mine that <laughs> things make sense. Yeah, you know things. Your your philosophy actually holds together. When people ask me why I believe what I believe, if they give me enough time, I can explain it. And that was not true before. Yeah, it, you, what you just said reminds me of C.S. Lewis when he said, "I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else." That's right. That's exactly it. And, and you know, that that is, you know, it's not proof. I don't believe in proof because I believe you wouldn't be free if you could prove the existence of God without a doubt. Uh, God wants you to be free. He wants you to love him. And to love him means you must choose him. You know, you have to choose him. And to choose him, you have to have faith and, all, you know, all of that. But I think that is evidence. It is evidence that when you look at the world, you can make sense of it suddenly. And other people are talking some kind of not guys like Steven Pinker, as smart as he is, as lovely a person as he may be, is sometimes talking nonsense. Yeah. And I think I think that that's an important clue. Well, Andrew, at the end of all of our programs, we always ask our guests to share the gospel, and uh, we just want to give you that opportunity, brother. Well, you know, all I would say about the gospel as I see it is that even though it comes to us by supernatural means, there, there's nothing actually supernatural about it. We all know that the world has a moral component to it. Jesus spoke in parables not because uh, he wanted to tell little stories or he thought it would be fun uh, or easy for people to understand. He spoke in parables because a parable is telling you something. It's telling you that a story about the material world has a moral component. When you hear about the uh, prodigal son, you suddenly know you're hearing a story about forgiveness and you're hearing a story about love. How could you know that if our physical lives were not just a language that God speaks to describe himself to us? And and when we live like that, when we live like that, not only are we more joyful, uh, but as I say, the world starts to make sense. And it's it's almost never what the best the best piece of advice in the Gospels is judge not lest you be judged. It's almost never about telling the other guy what he should be doing. It's about looking at yourself and saying, am I living every moment like that? Am I living every moment as if every word I say, every move I make is expressing the thought that God had when he thought of me. And and look, you know, it's not, it shouldn't be about blaming yourself when you fail because you fail every minute. Uh, it's not about, uh, you know, excoriating yourself, whipping yourself. It really is about living, moving toward that star. And it's such a beautiful experience. It's a big, big difference to be in a stormy sea in the dark of night, but to be able to see the North Star. Uh, and to be in a storm, you see in the dark of night and be blind. Uh, once you see the star, you know which way you're going. Uh, you can get through a lot, a lot, knowing the direction you have to move. And again, it all makes sense. This is the thing. We all know this stuff. We know we live in a moral world. We know we live in a world of spiritual ideas that don't have material being except in us, except in our lives. We know this, and we only forget it 
when it costs us money or it makes us feel bad or it makes us feel ashamed or it means we can't have the girl or the guy we want. Uh, that's when we start to ditch those ideas. But all the rest of the time, we know they're there. So I, what I would just say is live as you know to be and look to the Gospels for the guide for what that knowledge means. All righty, Andrew. Well, thank you so much for coming on the program. I would definitely love to have you back again to maybe discuss some uh, some stuff, especially on morality, and talk about a little bit more about atheism stuff. That would be very interesting. <laughs> yeah, so it's been a real pleasure. It's been a really fun time. Thanks. Yeah, so where can our uh, audience uh, go find you for those who don't know you? They need to know yeah, you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm rebuilding my website, so soon you can go to andrewclavin.com. It'll probably be a couple of weeks before I have that, but you can find me on Twitter uh, at Andrew Clavin, and I'm on the the Daily Wire. I do a podcast, The Andrew Clavin Show, four days a week, uh, Monday through Thursday. And please uh, go on Amazon and uh, you can buy my memoir there and also my new book, which is an adventure story called Another Kingdom. Uh, you can pre order that. And that's K L A V A N, right? There's no E's in Clavin. <laughs> I, just, I just make it look easy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> someone should write a jingle about that to help, uh, you know, remember that. <laughs> no, that, that is it. I, and, I, I, and I hope people will go and especially check out the books. Uh, because um, I think they're they're pretty good. Oh yeah, they're great. They're great. Uh, all right, Andrew. Hey, thank you so much for coming on. We're gonna go ahead and uh, and let you go. But it was a pleasure speaking with you. And uh, and I'll tune into today's episode later. <laughs> your your episode. <laughs> all right. Thanks very much. I yeah, appreciate. it. Thank you, Andrew. Bye bye. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Well, we're done with this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. That was that was a joy, right? Right, yeah. Shane. It was great, man. A- a- Andrew's just such a such a fantastic uh, thinker. Definitely a, a highly intellectual and uh, super witty. Super witty, yeah, exactly. But um, anyway, guys, um, if if you want to support Bridge Ministries, uh, please go to www.bridgebookstexas.org. Hit the about slash give page uh, or, the, or our pages, and you can find more information about us. We are a uh, Christian bookstore and coffee shop, and our sole purpose here in our community is to provide resources to unbelievers and believers in their growth of their Christian faith. Uh, we are called to disciple and equip the saints, and, and as well, too, to be a, a means for books for the church. So uh, we, we are not the church, but we, uh, we are, our purpose here is to, is to help the church and to help the body grow and to do evangelism and and so if uh if your all your donations would be uh uh very appreciate appreciative if i'm i always i always mess up on on on, on uh, pronouncing words like that anyway but um yeah that just helps us uh, uh with this podcast to do um to do what we're doing here in, in ministry work so please 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 um, prayerfully consider that uh, we will see you on the next episode uh, but as always what is your comfort in life and in death and it is that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ and thank you and we will see you on the next one